and welcome to This Is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and we are now in March 1989. Wow. Joining me today in the studio is Paul. Welcome, Paul. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. How are you? Good. Yeah. I've had some uh, curious listeners who have been wanting to know about all these guests coming into the studio and a little more about who they are and what makes them experts in alternative rock music, I guess. So... Um, should we talk about that a little bit? You've been you've sure. been in bands. Yeah, I've been in bands. Mm-hmm. I know you've been in punk bands, right? Uh, would you say you've been in alternative or modern rock bands as well? Yeah, and sort of industrial goth, mm-hmm. some sort of horror metal. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and you're currently in a band. Yes, yeah, a couple. Um, yeah. what, what kind of music are we talking about? Um, sort of a country band and a power pop, and then a Bowie cover band. And, okay. And. Uh, just your normal, everyday punk rock cover bands. Okay, so you just you just run the range of alternative. I like music. music. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice. And you've been doing this for a while, so you're yeah an old hat at, at alternative music. Old is being the operative word. <laughs> okay. The modern rock charts at this time, there's been a lot of fluctuation, and uh, the first new song to hit number one in March 1989 was a song by The Replacements. Are you familiar with this band? Oh, my favorite. Your favorite band? Uh, well, definitely one of my top five, probably, and a huge influence on me wanting to be in bands. Really? Yeah. How far back do you go with them? Did you get in on that on when they when they were first starting out? Or no, it's sort of Tim. When Tim came Tim, out, okay. I was you know we heard Bastard the Young and just mm-hmm. like of course freaked and then wore the grooves out of that thing. Yeah. And then you know went back and discovered all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Bought it on cassette. Yeah. I still have it. Nice. Yeah. The Replacements are a band that I think is really interesting because if you know a lot about alternative music, you probably love this band. They're they're kind of legendary mm-hmm. within that scene. They've got some albums that are just considered stone cold classics. Mm-hmm. But if you have more of like a casual music fan and they say like, well, what's a replacement song that I might know? And you say, well... <laughs> you you probably don't. You probably right. don't know one of their songs right. because for many reasons, uh, they never quite found that popular success. Right. Self-defeating. They, definitely. More than anything. Definitely. Do you want to address that a little bit? Well, they just, they wanted to keep on getting bigger and better, but every time they, they got anywhere, they just couldn't stand it. Right. They knew that they were a great band, mm-hmm. but they would seemingly do anything they could to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. Including, up to this point, either refusing to do music videos, or when they were absolutely forced to, their videos would be like a static shot of a... Speaker. Of a speaker. Yeah. Yeah. So, I was playing with this band. I was in Rochester, New York at the time. They did an in-store at a record shop. So, we were like, hey, you know, we just kind of had the day off or whatever. And we're like, let's go down there and meet them, you know? And actually, there was a, a music magazine that they were on the cover of and we had an, a big article on the inside like a full page article on my band at the time blast okay. paris so i had them sign that you know all stuff and it was like these great signatures and then i had a record yeah and i handed it to paul and he took it from me immediately smashed it over his knee and like handed it back to me wow it was and that was and i just kind of like in a daze just sort of walked outside like what a dick you know <laughs> yeah but in retrospect, looking back at it, it's like, how pompous of me to give him my record. Like, if every schmo that comes up to him hands him a record. Yeah. I mean, 25 records is a foot 
of records that he's going to put in a van right. or on his bus. Like how? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, from what I've read, they smashed up their bus. They yeah. smashed up everything. Right. So, you know, you just became part of that legacy. Right. But I was just kind of like, uh. yeah. <laughs> like here, here's my record. Smash. Yeah. Like, okay, cool, Paul. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> So that's that's Paul Westerberg, the yeah, lead Paul singer Westberg, and yeah. uh, And songwriter. I think Tommy was next to him and Tommy mm-hmm. just like started cracking up and mm-hmm. laughing just like you did it again. Yep. So um Tommy Stinson mm-hmm. and um Tommy Stinson's older brother Bob Stinson was also in the replacements mm-hmm. up until this point. So this is the first album where Bob's no longer in the band right. and he's been replaced by Slim, Slim uh, Dunlap. Yep, Slim Dunlap. And um I think many people consider this to be the replacements worst album. I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about that? Um, well, it seemed like it was getting more mainstream and, mm-hmm. and they were definitely sort of reeling from the loss of Bob, mm-hmm. you know, although it seemed like maybe it was something that needed to happen. But I mean, Tim was just so solid. Every song on there was just great. And even the solos that he played were like disjointed and, and weird, but still perfectly, you know, manicured to what the music called for. Yeah. And so I think Paul was clearly asserting his leadership and it was kind of going in more of a, dare I say, rootsy sort of, you know, like mm-hmm. vein is getting away from the sort of their stonesy, really loose. Now there's there's some of that on that record, I think, if, as I recall, I haven't heard it in a while, but yeah, he was sort of getting more in the singer-songwriter. Right. And this is kind of the beginning of the end, I think, for The Replacements. Their final album, their follow-up to this, was essentially a, a solo album, even though it was under The Replacements yeah. name. And I think he, there were songs on there that, you know, specifically addressed them, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> breaking up, basically. Right. The song we're going to hear is called I'll Be You. This is, I guess, The Replacements' biggest hit. Mm. It went to number one on the modern rock charts. And it climbed to number 51 on the Hot 100. Wow. So, you know, that's certainly not a huge hit, but it's uh, some kind of mainstream recognition. Sure. They, were, they recorded a, an actual music video featuring the band for the first time, and that got considerable airplay on MTV. You know, they were getting out there, and I think it was just too little too late. I think yeah. they did amazing work that no one or a lot of people ignored. And, right. Um, Except for uh, other musicians, I think. Well, of he, course. Like myself, you know, and, and other people who, you know, have gone on f- f- way further than I have, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, just listen to that one. Like, holy mackerel, these guys are great. Yeah. Okay, well, um, why don't we go ahead and listen to I'll Be You and then we can talk about it. Okay. Okay. Lonely, I guess that's where I'm All right, that was I'll Be You by The Replacements. Man, great song. Yeah, great song. Seriously, everything about it. I love the the way the guitar just chunks along, and then, but I also really love that just he would hit a chord and just let it ring out during the verse. Man, I, mm-hmm. I mean, even at this point, still just in the little vocal lines in the back, you know? Yeah. 
And they were definitely developing, you know, with a little that tasty little piano at the mm-hmm. beginning. You know, <laughs> it's just yeah, it's yeah. great. Did it? Does this seem to you noticeably more commercial than their previous output? I mean, it seems slicker, but there was always that side of Paul's writing all, all the way back to on Stink. There's uh, some songs that are really kind of sweet and almost like stand out. He recorded one I called uh, Die Within Your Reach or something, I think, you know, where it's just a drum machine and him and it's, mm-hmm. and they're doing all this like hardcore stuff and he's got this kind of ballady song in there, you know? Yeah. But he always has that great sort of longing and rasp in his voice where, right. you know, he, it's just kind of this tortured soul, yeah like they know? can clean it up as much as they want but he's still you know it's still the replacement right yeah he's, he's still got a pint of jack in him somewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah exactly so this song it was their bid for mainstream success mm. fell a little short mm-hmm. much to their disappointment and relief right i suppose and then things fell apart from there Although I think we're going to hear one more song from the replacements in a future episode. Oh. Yeah, so maybe it's not their final parting shot. Right. Yeah, they just kept on trying, you know, and I think there's just the push and pull of what they wanted to do and what the record label wanted them to do because they'd invested a lot of time and money in them, and mm-hmm. you know, and they just felt like, man, these guys are so great. I mean, that was what everyone said when they're on and they're great. There's nobody that's better. Right. Like, they're the best band. Right. But, you know, the next night they could totally just, like, fall apart just sure. or totally. or just absolutely intentionally yeah throw the show yeah right yeah they had something they called their pussy set right which was they would antagonize the audience right. as much as they possibly right. could and it seemed like they had a history of purposely doing a terrible show every right. time big time record execs yeah. showed up to watch them which you just wonder how much is that just them you know thumbing their nose flipping them the bird or was it actually some kind of internal, yeah. you know, like manifestation of their insecurity? Of course, like I don't want to screw this up, so I'm going to purposely screw up, right. and then there's then know, I have an excuse yeah. for not having achieved that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a sad story. It, it is in the sense that they didn't make it further, but on the other hand, everybody who loves them gets to keep them as their little gem, That's, and we don't have to claim that you know they've sold out because they're you too that's true and and beyond that you know they were together long enough to put out seven albums and an ep you know there's and they're all they all have really good stuff on them they really do none that you feel like oh they've just totally jumped a shark you know Mm. well but uh, i mean you could say the same thing about somebody like john prine mm. who had like maybe a hit but he was never a huge success you Mm -hmm. know but i mean you talk to anyone who appreciates a great singer songwriter and he's got to be right up there as you know american gem sure well i've got another example for you which is the next song we're going to listen to immediately following the replacements at number one elvis costello hits number one and elvis costello likewise i think is an artist who people know his name Mm -hmm. he's regarded as somewhat legendary Mm -hmm. but as far as actually having hit songs they're really just not there. Really? Yeah. I mean, if you say, name some Elvis Costello songs for me, I mean, I think you can name some and I can name some, but <laughs> but I think a lot of music fans would be really hard pressed. Yeah. Maybe every day I write the book, mm. perhaps. Allison. Allison. Would but probably it, be, you know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so Elvis Costello, he uh, started out right after that initial punk explosion and he is just releasing material 
quickly. He, yeah. he is he has an incredible output. So by the time we hit 1989, he is on his 12th studio album. God. Yeah. Elvis Costello, Your Aim is True is like my first quote unquote punk album that uh-huh. I personally bought. Yeah. Like I'd heard, you know, my friends were turning me on to the Sex Pistols and Clash and this and that, but I went out and bought that. Yeah. That was another one, just wore everything off it. And, you know, those are probably actually two of my most influential would be the replacements in Elvis Costello. Really? Yeah. A lot of times I, my um, vocal style gets compared to him. Well, we got you on the right episode. <laughs> So in 1989, his album Spike is released, mm. and he did some songwriting here with Paul McCartney. Right. And so Paul had a hand in writing the song we're going to hear, okay. which I think it might be his biggest hit in the U.S., and it's called Veronica. Mm-hmm. Do you know the song? Oh, yeah. This hit number one on the modern rock charts, but it's also his only top 20 hit on the mm-hmm. Hot 100. It hit number 19. Really? Yeah. It was big MTV. It was yeah. played there quite a bit, and it was all over the radio. I yeah. remember hearing it and just being like, man, so great. Yeah. Just the melody line, like dripping with hook, you know? Yeah, definitely. But it's still, it's really kind of complicated. It's hard to sort of follow exactly where everything's going in it. Right. So in spite of not having radio singles or breaking through on the charts, his albums were selling amazingly well Mm. 10 of his first 12 albums were top 40 albums on the u.s album charts yeah and you know top 40 is not huge that doesn't mean it's selling millions of copies obviously but somehow word was getting around that this guy is someone to watch this guy can write good songs even if you haven't necessarily heard the songs you might want to check this out i once heard a quote by him that said that musicians don't have a pension they just have a back catalog. And uh-huh. so he was just, I think that was his plan. He's just going to lay down a bunch of stuff. And eventually the sales from all those albums were going to like right. keep him in dope. But then he ended up, you know, I mean, clearly he's he had a, that talk show. Did you ever see his talk show? No. He would interview musicians and stuff. It was very entertaining. Yeah. I think the most recent thing I've seen Elvis Costello in was uh, an episode of 30 Rock. Really? Did you catch him on there? You know, I watched all those, but I don't recall that. Yeah, it was a big benefit where they got a bunch of musicians, Cheryl Crow and uh-huh. everybody to come in for a kidney transplant fundraiser. Uh-huh. And he was introduced as Declan McManus, international art thief. <laughs> <laughs> so some viewers might know him from that more than they know his music, yeah, right. strangely enough. Mm. Yeah. So let's go ahead and listen to Veronica. Okay. Here we go. Okay, that was Veronica. Yeah, I wonder what the um, what the Paul McCartney influence was. I mean, you hear that little trumpet come in there and stuff, but mm-hmm. that's more George Martin, really, than, you know, I don't think the Beatles yeah. were like, add a trumpet, you know. I read that Elvis Costello brought this song in, and it was somewhat formed already, uh-huh. and Paul could have had more influence than this, but I know that he worked on the bridge, uh-huh. okay. so he helped make it seem a little dreamier sure. than it had seemed before. yeah, yeah. yeah. As I'm listening back to it, there's kind of an XTC-ness to it. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you hear that? Yeah, except I feel like XTC would make it 
more dissonant or yeah. minor in certain places. It's right. kind of the thing they do where you go like, I feel uncomfortable for a part of the verse. And then you're like, whoa, this chorus right. is so uplifting. But there's something in there. Man, that's a great song. It is. It feels, it feels classic. It right. feels accessible. I love the harmonies right through the verse, the whole, you know, first verse, you mm-hmm. know. And I, I think one of the really interesting things about this song is it, it feels like such a pop song. Mm-hmm. And yet lyrically, it's, I would say, a far cry from a traditional pop song. Mm-hmm. If you actually pay attention to the lyrics, it's not like a love song about some girl named Veronica. It's actually inspired by his grandmother right. who um, suffered from dementia mm-hmm. and later had Alzheimer's. But that's very Beatlesque, And, you know, you, you listen to the lyrics to a lot of the you know, white album and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and it's just, they're singing about all kinds of stuff. Sure. She said was written about Peter Fonda. Like John was tripping at some party and Peter Fonda was kind of freaking him out saying, I know what it's like to be dead. <laughs> you know, So he made this great song. Oh, he... yeah. So they sort of had a history of writing stuff that was kind of not traditional mm-hmm. as well as defining what tradition was. Of course. Yeah, so I, I guess there's that contrast between the feel of the song, which is very uplifting mm-hmm. and happy sounding, and then the lyrical content, which is maybe more melancholy. Yeah, just little things like that can can take a song from feeling standard and and kind of right. done before and old hat, and making them seem more interesting and something worth investigating a little further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot in there. It's a great song. I love it when songs kind of come to a, a stop. You mm-hmm. know, like they have that one double snare hit you know that sort of ends this phrase and starts the next one you know i really like that i admire that yeah okay we're moving on to our third artist of the day and this is a fellow by the name of midge yuri midge yuri do you know this guy that sounds super familiar to me and i have a feeling like i'm gonna know what song it is. yeah so this guy i did not know him by name but i'm definitely familiar with bands he's worked in so he was in thin lizzie really Wow. He was okay. in a band called Visage. They had a minor hit with Fade to Grey. Mm-hmm. And he was probably most notably in the band Ultravox. Right. Okay. He was a lead singer for Ultravox. And he was their lead singer uh, when they had their biggest hit, Vienna. Okay. So this was a synth pop band right. in the early 80s. And Vienna was just a huge worldwide hit. It didn't yeah. really do much in the US, but it was it was a big song across the globe. I was in a band... And we covered an Ultravox song, One Fine Day. Okay. <laughs> uh, not the Carol King. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, yeah. So fun fact about Ultravox. They famously stalled at number two on the UK charts with Vienna. Mm-hmm. And it was held off number one by a song called Shut Up A You Face. <laughs> wow. Do you know this song? No. So I hadn't heard the song either, but... When I investigated it, it, it was amazing. This was a huge, huge worldwide smash. Like six million copies of the single sold. It was number one in like 11 countries. And it was by Joe Dolce. He's an Australian guy. And this of album... Of the Gabbana fame? Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. To this day, Shut Up You Face is the most successful Australian produced single in Australia of all time. Really? Yeah, and I, I think we need to hear a little bit of this song. Okay. Yeah. What's the matter you? Hey, got no respect. What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's a not so bad. It's a nicer place. I shut up your face. That's All right. my mom. <laughs> 
Yeah, and the replacements didn't make it to 40. That's right. But that was a worldwide hit. A worldwide smash. Man. So, All right. I ult- guess it tickled something in. That's right. So, uh, Ultravox never quite made it to number one there. <clears throat> Hell no. that. Yep. Wow. But Ultravox. It's got to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it hurts in so many ways. <laughs> So uh, Ultravox eventually uh, breaks up. Uh, Mid-Jury goes solo. And um, this song we're going to hear is called Dear God. This song, according to Mid-Jury, is the only song that ever came to him in a dream. Mm. So woke up, scribbled it down so he wouldn't lose it. and um, la Robert Smith. Yeah, fully formed. He said he'd get a lot of his songs from dreams. Have you ever dreamt a song? No. no. I don't. I've thought of songs at night, but I wouldn't consider them dreams, mm-hmm. you know, like laying in bed and then try to remember it the next day. But yeah, I've dreamt songs a few times mm-hmm. and I can't hold on to them. Like right. I, I try so hard and I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm in this kind of lucid dream state. Right. Remember it, remember it, remember it. And as soon as I get up, it, it vanishes. Yeah. I, I think that just means it wasn't as memorable a song. It, it wasn't that good. Yeah, not I mean, worth stuff in your dreams can be like ridiculously non-meaningful. Yeah, they in, they in feel reality. meaningful. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it, it felt like a good song, but in reality, <laughs> it was you know, shut up your face. Shut up your face. <laughs> that guy was Australian. Uh, apparently. Really. Because that seems like appropriation. <laughs> Cultural Culture appropriation. appropriation. That's right. Joe Dolce, that's not going to fly in 2017. <laughs> it is not. I mean, with the hat, the whole look and everything, it yeah. seems really contrived. I would assume he's of Italian descent. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But still, that's just like... Now, Midge Yuri, I have no idea where that guy's from. What kind of last name is Yuri? Do you a know? Yuri? Well, I don't, there's, a, there's a Yugoslavian motorcycle or a Russian motorcycle oh. called a Yuri. Interesting. So... So I mean, that's, we'll just assume he's part of that family and that, I, you know, he was born sounds, with a silver spoon in his yeah. mouth. <laughs> or at the very least, Eastern European. Yeah. But Midge? So Midge is a childhood nickname, Okay, uh, which is the name Jim flipped around backwards. Okay. Yeah. That explains that. It's very rock and roll, though, Midge Yuri. Mm-hmm. Man, it it's just a, rolls it, off the it tongue. It is. It's a cool... It, it yeah. sounds better than, than James Yuri. What did he do in... What was the Finn Lizzie? Yeah. I don't know. No, of course, I, I think a lot of people have been in Thin Lizzy, but man, that's they couldn't right. have like totally opposite kind of mm-hmm. musical styles from Ultravox to Thin Lizzy. You're, yeah, that is interesting. God bless them. Yeah. So let's go ahead and listen to the song, Dear God, by Mid-Jury. I totally recognize that song. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that one. Yeah, it didn't really speak to me at the time. But I mean, you know, it's well crafted, mm-hmm. you know, for what it is. I mean, man, they just threw the kitchen sink in there at the end, you know, yeah. just really built it up. And mm-hmm. So this song, Dear God, it peaked at number four on the modern rock charts in a previous month. This month, its highest position is number six, but it really held on for quite a while. Sure. It's, um, it's stuck around. Mm-hmm. So... Clearly, college radio listeners or alternative music listeners, something about this was grabbing them. Well, it probably makes them feel good, you know, mm-hmm. because it's so politically, you know. Yeah, it's a message correct. song. Yeah. It's like if you bought um, that Christmas 
We Are the World. Charity single. Right, and you needed something to listen to in the summertime. You know, you yeah. could you could put this on. And... Yeah. Although, the, if you listen to the lyrics, um, it's a little ambiguous, maybe. Mm. Is the Dear God, is, is this a plea for help? Almost or, a, a, accusing, you know, like, yeah. is there somebody watching yes, this? Exactly. Is there somebody yeah. watching what's going on? It's, yeah, I got that. Is it despairing, or is it, <laughs> right. you know, or is it asking right. politely? I, I will say... I'm not that into this song. I, th- mm. I think there's some interesting touches. Yeah. You know, there's some some good synthy atmospherics sure. going on, but overall, it's not, I mean, it doesn't not piss my me off. No, you know I mean, no. it, it's pablamy in the sense that you know, yeah, I wouldn't pull it out and, and put it on. But if it was playing in the background yeah. at work, I wouldn't be offended. You know, right? Although somebody might be. Yeah, <laughs> not as much as the XTC's version. Which no. Is- clearly a better song yeah a way better song yeah. and and i mean there's a definite viewpoint mm-hmm. yes <laughs> uh, oh you know what one other thing midjury did and this is actually kind of funny he co-wrote do they know it's christmas really he did he was he was responsible <laughs> i swear i didn't know that when yeah. i said that he did he co-wrote that song and was responsible for helping to put together that do you whole think i read fun- your notes or something <laughs> <laughs> no did you no, no, I absolutely did not. I was just like, oh, yeah, because of the lyrical content and right. stuff. And he's probably trying to, I mean, not, not to be too cynical, but let's say ride that wave yeah. as opposed to cash in on yeah. on that, what he had already done, accomplished. No. I mean, I bought that for my whole family, uh-huh. that do we know it's Christmas, right. you know, f- as the Paul Christmas gift of life to, mm-hmm. to my all my siblings and family. I also gave him the craps. <laughs> hermit crabs yeah okay my my mom (laughs) kept at her house like yeah then that that single was raising money for starving people in africa is that right Uh uh-huh i mean that was like the first big thing you know Mm -hmm. before live aid i think it was that yeah do you know if um declan mcmanus international art thief was part of that i can only imagine that i I think i recall his mug in that yeah you know sergeant peppery sort of alignment of people you know right all right, we're going to move on to our, our fourth and final song. And as usual, I like to dig a little deeper into okay. the charts, looking for something. Drill down. Yeah, look for something interesting, something that's maybe not a huge hit, but has some story behind it. Mm-hmm. So I found a band called The Untouchables. Mm. And this band, they're often regarded as America's first ska band. Mm. They're from L.A., and at least at first, they were a multi-racial band. Two-tone. Mm-hmm. That's right. And they never achieved great success, but they were fairly popular in the LA area. They were able to draw sizable crowds, especially after having um, played a number of shows with bands like Fishbone mm. and Chili Peppers and sure. okay. B-52s and things like that. They formed in, in LA in 1981, and they appeared in a couple movies. Do you remember the movie Party Animal? That yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah, don't seek it out. It's, yeah, I mean, you're, you got your management needs to be connected for you to get in the movie. Definitely, but I think more famously, they appeared in the cult film Repo Man. Oh, really? At, as a scooter gang. Ah. And I would guess a big part of that is probably because they might have owned scooters. They they refer to themselves as a bunch of mods playing ska. Sure. Well, there you go. Yeah. So they're like, we need a scooter gang. Are they on the soundtrack? Uh, it looks like they're not on the soundtrack. Really. There's a lot of hardcore bands, yeah. Oh, but, yeah. and, and the Andrew sisters, <laughs> but no untouchables. Sadly, that would have been um, that would have been really good for them. Their management was good, but not that good. Not that good. 
So um, I guess this band did not have a lot of output. By 1989, they had only released their second album. Uh, and their second album was a bit of a change musically. Uh, the album is called Agent Double O Soul. And the song we're going to hear is called Agent Double O Soul. Mm. And this is actually a cover song. So are you familiar they with... They named their album after a cover song? Yeah, is that that's weird, right? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of weird. That, that just screams... We're out of ideas. Wow. Yeah, we're desperate. Yeah. So this is an Ed- Edwin Starr song. <laughs> I'm going to have to do it. Now I'm going to be obsessed with with that. Yeah. Um, Edwin Starr, most famous for his 1970 hit War. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What is it good for? Sure. Nothing. Yeah. Absolutely, Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Good uh, God, y'all. Yeah. I, I cannot hear that without thinking of uh, Jackie Chan singing that. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Was that in Rush Hour? Oh, Does I that, know. No. I never saw um, Rush Okay. <laughs> So, uh, Agent 00 Soul was Edwin Starr's first single back in 1965, and hmm. the Untouchables dug up that little gem and put their own spin on it. Sure. And uh, it was, you know, clearly not a huge hit, but... I can't was, wait to hear it. It was big enough to, to move them up to number 28 on the modern rock right. charts. And I'm, I'm anticipating trumpets. <laughs> you might be disappointed. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Agent 00 Soul. Wow. Yeah, wow. I hate to be a hater, but... I mean, you just think, what was Prince doing at that time? And, Bat dance. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what were these guys doing? And what's the comparison there? I mean, his phrasing was just kind of off and like... Yeah, it was weird. Uh, I haven't heard the original, so he could be just mimicking bad phrasing from Edwin Starr, but I, I sort of doubt that. Right, and the production is just... Like it's so stark and and not good. It seems like just a, a moderately competent producer could clean up those vocals, you know, with just some reverb or yeah. something, you know. Like yeah. it just doesn't sound right. Yeah, it also doesn't sound like ska. I mean, this is a different band than right. they were when they started for sure. Right. It made me think it was almost like Morris Day, mm-hmm. kind of like it's trying to kind of cop that sort it of. It could be. I do think it's interesting though that. You know, this charted on the modern rock charts, yeah. right? Not just because there are other songs that I think should have charted instead of this, but, you know, it does speak to the diversity of music that the college kids want to hear. The modern rock charts are overwhelmingly white and mm-hmm. predominantly male, but I think there still is, in 1989, a desire to hear new and different sounds and, and kind of reach out into different areas of what might be considered rock. Do you think there's a whiff of payola there? Like, would somebody actually have to pay someone to put that on? They played with a number of huge bands. Yeah. So they might have had friends right. helping them out. Mm-hmm. They might have had some people who had seen them open for other shows and go like, oh, yeah, The Untouchables. I remember that. Right. Um, let's give the them a name. spin. They got a new album right. out. And the and the guy who raps on it, I mean, you know, he's, he's spitting. Yeah, we should talk a little about the rap, though, because rap 
at least in rock music, sure. is still somewhat new. This sure. is maybe an exciting sound to mm-hmm. listeners. Well, I think it was that sound. I mean, that there was the Chili Peppers, mm-hmm. you know, were doing that yeah. with the white guys who were doing it. and uh, Yeah, Beastie Boys, yeah, of right. course. Yeah. So no, they, had, they had sort of charted with that. Yeah, I mean, no, Blondie you, had tried to do some rapping as far back as Rapture. Right, but um, that didn't. I mean, it's a great song. Don't get me wrong, and and massively influential. But I don't think she was particularly good. You know, it was, no, no. It was like the the guys on the sofa commercials that are trying to rap, or mm-hmm. you know, like the the Super Bowl Bears doing their rap. Who are the Super Bowl Bears? The when the Bears. Oh, the the team. Yeah, yeah, the okay. Chicago Bears. Oh, got, oh, oh, they had yeah. The they did, team rapped. Yeah, they did a whole thing. They did an anti drug thing, I think, oh. and it's like. You know, where they're doing like the synchronized step yeah. back and forth. Yeah, it's really bad. Okay. I'm going to check that out. <laughs> yeah, but that guy was actually, that was actually good. I mean, that's kind of the high point of the song, really, mm-hmm. was when that happened. And the little horn thing at the beginning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, alternative music listeners kind of wetting their appetite for some yeah. rap in their rock music, perhaps. Right. And it seemed like, it, I mean, unless we're missing something, it had primarily been. Um, white guys who are doing that and this is the first time that it's like really a a black band that's that's been able to sort of muscle their way in yeah i mean of course you know run dmc they had a huge hit right but they had to also feature aerosmith sure to do that right yeah. in their song aerosmith's song of course you know. yeah all right agent double o soul agent double o soul this whole project is fascinating to me actually you know because i didn't really understand that there was a separate genre and i remember most of these songs, I heard them because I was listening to college radio at the time, you mm-hmm. know, in Boston and back in Rochester, which um, at the time we thought was horrible radio. But in retrospect, it was miles ahead of a lot of places where I've been. Boston, my understanding is that they, they were fairly supportive of local bands mm-hmm. and al- the alternative mm-hmm. scene much earlier than a lot of other. Yeah, bands. we actually had a, I was in a band called Flail that got a, a record on FNX. You know, mm-hmm. one of their local shows, and man, our shows there took off. Like, it yeah. was amazing. Yeah. Wow. Turns out radio play really helps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks everyone for listening. As usual, if you have any questions or comments, please email us at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. I'd like to thank Paul for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And, uh, I never know how to close this. I always want to say good night, and it's the middle of the day. You need a tagline. Yeah. Shut up, you face. (laughs) Shut up, you face. You know, I think my mom used to say that to me. Is that like a traditional song? (laughs) Is it an old traditional song? Yeah, it comes from the old country. I mean, she literally used to say that to Shut up, you face. Is your mom Italian? No, far from it. Like, as Irish as you can. I was going to say, I would would imagine she was Irish. Yeah. Because of the pasty white skin. That was her own special way of being racist against Italians. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, and the other way was that she would serve us ragu. Yeah. <laughs> Insulting. You know? and shut up with your face. <laughs> shut up your face. E- eat your ragu and shut up with your face. Oh, okay. That's brilliant. Yeah. We're out of here. All right. Bye. Bye.